Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. This is the second of two episodes that ask the question, what has changed in social protection since COVID-19? In last month's episode, we took a broad view of trends, looking at what some of the most important changes have been, as well as considering those that may have received less attention. This month, we're bringing you a more in-depth view of that change, looking at social protection programs in India and Botswana. We'll look at how these were adapted to meet the challenges of the pandemic and consider what lasting effects there might be. In India, the flagship public works program had to expand rapidly to accommodate increased demand, and its greatly expanded budget has driven greater convergence with other forms of public assistance. And in Botswana, the government last year announced an overhaul of its social protection schemes to provide more systematic protection across the life cycle in response to the COVID experience. India's Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, or Mahatma Gandhi Nrega, is the world's largest public works program. It guarantees 100 days of minimum wage employment for people in need. During COVID-19, it formed a critical part of India's safety net, especially for people who lost work in cities and returned to rural areas. I spoke with Rajiv Ahel, Director of Natural Resource Management and Agroecology at GIZ India, about how the program adapted and changed in response to this surge of demand for work. So what is interesting is, it is a statutory act asking any government that comes in, even if governments change, this has to be done. It's not a program or a scheme which is political in nature and can be changed if a different political party comes in. So it's, it's a national entitlement. It's a fundamental entitlement that covers now almost 270,000 70, local government councils of India. Now, you're looking at India all the way from Hindu Kush mountains all the way down to deserts. And uh, if you look at it, even though there are 264 different types of activities that can be done, but on an average, a person can earn up to two and a half dollars per day. So it's a self-targeting scheme. Anybody can just go to the local area, to their local council and say, I don't have enough work, I need work. And then it becomes a government entitlement to give this 100 days of work within five kilometers of where the person lives. So right now, almost the scheme has covers 155 million households and almost 256 million workers have registered on it. And if you really see, uh, on a yearly basis, almost 53% of the work is done by women. It also then people, uh, you know, start on not just activities out of nowhere, but actually do things which help them to make their own livelihoods, their own natural resource base more resilient in time to come. So last year, when the first wave of COVID moved through India, lockdowns first came into force, people lost work in cities, there was a mass exodus of internal migrant workers who had to return back to the rural areas and villages that they came from. Can you talk us through the sort of the scale of this migration and the implications for social protection and what needed to be done? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex story in India. So if you were to look at work or employment or business-related migration, you're looking at about 120 million people in a year who are constantly migrating. And this group of people is growing at almost 4.5% annually. 
Now, the, I guess the, the most favorable migration is the aspirational migration, where mostly youth and men who migrate alone, uh, seeking better opportunities, better wages. But I guess the one which is the most difficult one and which has been the most affected has been that of distressed migrants. People who don't have enough water in those areas, their water stressed areas, little or no land, are illiterate or don't have very high level skills. So this is the one which comes and does the low level, low skill work in most of the urban areas, become the, you know, the ecological refugees. And they were the ones who've been affected the most uh, by the lockdown in 2020 and 2021. If you look at the some level of figures that the Ministry of Labor and Employment provided, a rough estimate is that almost 10 million migrant laborers returned to their home villages uh, in 2020 and 2021. Mahatma Gandhi and Enrega being the main safety net that's operating in a lot of these places, how did it respond? What kind of adaptations did it need to make at that time? Well, I mean, there was always uh, some drought happening in some pocket and, you know, Mahatma Gandhi and Narega had this ability to, in such areas, even increase the number of allowed days from 100 to 150 days. So there were these mechanisms available within Mahatma Gandhi and Narega to provide absorption of localized shocks. But I think COVID-19 was so large so what the government of India did is it provided on top of the 8 billion euros that was planned, almost another 4.8 billion euros was uh, topped up. And this additional allocation provided a huge amount uh, for the state governments to be able to start or respond to additional wage work. In fact, the nature of it was that if you look at September last year and even May, uh, June of this year, states which did never had high Mahatma Gandhi Narega uh, dependence because there were other occupations people were able to work on uh, reported numbers they had not reported in 15 years so it's almost as if Mahatma Gandhi Narega became the go-to program for people to immediately find re relief in the short run the other thing was uh, at a time when COVID is you know really rampant how do you do uh, mass group work on activities so what Mahatma Gandhi Narega did is came up quickly with new set of guidelines, how under social distancing uh, work could still be done. Uh, masks were provided, sanitizers were provided. So new things were created as part of the program so that the program could respond to a COVID situation as well. So earlier, the system was uh, dependent a lot on uh, you know, transparency and accountability. If uh, a certain group of people or uh, households came up and said they wanted work, it had to be at some point verified in the general house of the local council. But for this time, when the COVID was happening, efforts were now made for direct uh, registra registration of people. Uh, people could just simply send an SMS or even just uh, go to the nearest public servant and uh, enroll themselves. So lots of ways were found to make this uh, much more open and accessible to people. So guidelines came from government in India and in some of the most affected districts, very innovative ways were found uh, to connect better with the people. I think the two things that kept rural India going at this time uh, was one was, of course, Mahatma Gandhi Narega, and other was, of course, the public distribution system, where at least in every village, almost every household can get food, basic grains, uh, the ration system when needed. So there's a buffer and people could go to it and take help of it. So these two programs worked very well together. The other interesting thing is the government created a program called Garib Kalyan Rozgar Abhiyan. So basically, 
uh, poor people's poverty or livelihood mission and uh, 116 districts in six of the most affected states of india about 15 to 20 programs were converged into mahatma gandhi narega so that it becomes even more comprehensive as a response and this really helped provide all sorts of opportunities for people so with almost 8 to 10 billion euros worth of investment from the government on providing ready wage work on the ground many other departments are also coming forward for example uh, for the prime minister's housing for the houseless program now any house uh, family without housing would get a certain amount of money which was sometimes maybe not enough so now mahatma gandhi narega came in and said that the labor part of making that house could be supported so of course many of these programs where additional convergence happens so forest department um, would have a, say a challenge around because of its funds and not being able to have nurseries. So Mahatma Gandhi Narega would come in and help with the nurseries. Uh, Childcare centers uh, under integrated child development program of government of India. So the buildings were refurbished. So in a sense, Mahatma Gandhi Narega provided this labor, which could you know, blend into other programs, which may have had shortage of labor and some amount of material. So Mahatma Gandhi Narega is about 60% labor component, 40% material. So this then really strengthened grassroots level infrastructure in this time as well. Tell me a little bit more about how the government is thinking about Mahatma Gandhi Nrega in the medium term as it's looking to the future of economic recovery. I think government is still to come out very uh, clearly with a post-COVID sort of a plan. But I think the basic fundamental thinking is quite uh, evident already. I think the focus is very, very strongly on livelihoods and income. So while there are 264 activities that can be done under Mahatma Gandhi Narega, almost 120 of them are around natural resources and water, which is one of the more major problems coming up in India. But side by side, they're also seeing this investment as doing a basic level uh, building up of the ecosystem, both the economic and the natural ecosystem, but also build up the social capital in a way where resilient livelihoods uh, would be more and more happening. And therefore, you know, look at the economic dimensions of what Mahatma Gandhi Narega can do. I mean, of course, now you're looking at a wage response program, trying to get into the economic frameworks and responses of a country. So I think building these rural areas in a way where these things can happen is, is what Mahatma Gandhi is uh, trying to do. I, I think what is also happening is that uh, in a very rough assessment, almost 25% of the people who've, who'd gone back may not be coming back to urban areas and other areas to work. I think this will be a very interesting aspect where people see a larger value in being rooted again, even though they are quite vulnerable still in the pocket or the where they belong. And I think these are the people to work with as Mahatma Gandhi Narega. And I'm very happy that uh, as Indo-German Development Cooperation and uh, Ministry of Rural Development, we have signed on a new program uh, called IRADA for Rural Resilience to Development Action. And the focus of this program is actually to work with such people. Can we find ways by which once the relief has happened with Mahatma Gandhi Narega, how can Mahatma Gandhi Narega can also be used for now rebuilding some part of the natural resources and then top it up also with next level of entrepreneurial activities 
which could be possible in rural pockets and sustain people much better there without them having to become refugees again. So these are the sort of areas that Mahatma Gandhi and Narega would have to look at going forward. Do you see that there have been attitude shifts or changes uh, amongst the public or from within government to social protection and safety nets in general in India as a result of COVID-19? No, I think COVID-19 has again proven to the detractors why something like Mahatma Gandhi Narega is needed in a country like India, which is still, you know, coming to that level of development and the development, of course, where almost 60% people are still living in rural areas and uh, with very marginal land and resources. I think the other thing it has done is that uh, it has shown in India that when everything else stopped, the farmers still went to the field and did the agriculture. So even though in the second wave, at some point, uh, finding markets was a bit of a challenge for selling, but locally people could do it, 60% of rural India survived because agriculture and allied activities were there. And therefore, the 60% focus of Mahatma Gandhi Narega on agriculture and allied activities again shows that this is a core area which should not change. There have been a lot of questions about moving to you know, other sectors and infrastructure support and things like that. But I think this has again been a strong endorsement that this is a core area. And I think it's a good lesson for other countries probably that how do you really balance uh, the wage work as well. But I think there's uh, always a crisis which pushes people to do some things that they've been a bit sluggish about and do it differently. And I think COVID really caused everybody to really look at resources where they were available and work much closer. The silos came down much more than before. And also, if you remember the scheme that I talked about, the Garib Kalyanru Yojana, now that actually caused in a structured manner departments to have to work with each other and this level where from a national down to a state level now there was guidelines political will direction and resources available coming out of an alignment i i really think the crisis created a new opportunity for delivering better development work of course Adaptations to programs like Mahatma Gandhi in Rega have occurred in response to the exceptional circumstances of COVID-19, so it's difficult to know what will persist once the effects of the pandemic begin to wane. But in Botswana, COVID-19 has given impetus for some significant policy change that would see its safety net transformed from a large collection of mostly small programs targeting the poorest and most vulnerable to a more consolidated set of schemes providing greater coverage over the course of people's lives. I spoke with Lillian Mokodi, a research fellow in the Human and Social Development Unit at the Botswana Institute of Development Policy Analysis, about the changes on the horizon. Lillian also worked with the United Nations on a new social protection strategy for Botswana, building on its experiences of the COVID-19 crisis. When it comes to our social protection, I need to mention that when we started the development of and adoption of the social protection system, we had different challenges, like we are responding to drought, uh, issues of poverty and uh, issues of HIV and AIDS. Our current social protection system has been directed especially to vulnerable groups, people who live below the poverty line, people with disabilities, the youth, 
and in some instances we also have other uh, programs that cover women and also uh, people that are not formally employed who goes now into the labor public works uh, we currently do not cover a person's life course in general, the existing social assistance systems continued to operate during the COVID-19 crisis, of course, with some modifications, some disruptions, and some minor delays. Recognizing the widespread effects of COVID-19 and the challenge for existing programs to respond at that uh, large scale, the government launched a new temporary social assistance named COVID-19 Food Relief Program, which provided food baskets to approximately two-thirds of all households across the country in order to mitigate the negative social impact of COVID-19. And uh, this uh, program did not only cover now the, uh, the, the populations that are under the current social uh, protection problem, program, it was sort of a new cabin system that covered more households. When the first and the second lockdowns were implemented, it was really hard even to get basic items from shops and many of the households, the breadwinners had lost their jobs. Some because of the lockdowns were receiving half salaries and some to like close to none. Therefore, the food relief, it really helped before people went back to work. How has the COVID experience changed the way Botswana is thinking about its social protection system? I would say the pandemic has altered our perspective on social protection. That is uh, why our government realized it was really important now to assess what we have in the uh, social prote uh, protection uh, base and then see how we can move forward in the during and after the COVID-19 uh, crisis. From the assessment, three main key aspects emerged. The most fundamental realization is that Botswana has a greater need for social protection than previously recognized. Botswana has been relying on a set of social assistance programs established in the last century that are increasingly unsuited to our current status, particularly to our ambition to become a high-income country by 2036. We really recognize that as a country. The second point is that Botswana is now confronted with challenges other than drought, other than HIV, other than poverty, which were the uh, aspects that pro prompted the development of the current social protection programs. Now we require social assistance that is proportionate to our economic and social development status. So what came out clear is that Botswana, like other upper middle income countries, and high income countries and with the ambition that we want to move forward, we need to build a social assistance system that takes into account individuals, vulnerabilities throughout the life and leaves no one behind. Like we need to approach this through a life course system. Then we took it of programs we have in place to properly reflect the life course uh, framework and then reinforce those programs with robust systems that are common across all the programs, like to create uh, a necessary enabling environment. For example, when you look at the life course stage, we can have a life course stage for pregnant women and infants. 
And then from there, we have a stage for school age children, and then we have a stage for the youth, the working age, and the old age. In that way, we cover like uh, all life stages of uh, an individual. I think what we are advocating for is that we do not need social protection for only the vulnerable groups or for only uh, people living with disabilities or a certain uh, population group. That, that came about clearly during the COVID-19 pandemic. And when you look at also now our statistics, like when you look at the employment rate that we have right now, we need more to assist people that are not necessarily considered as the vulnerable groups. So what this uh, is proposing is that every Mutwana who is in need or every Mutwana can be prepared to, to live well, to live like every Mutwana, this every Mutwana is coming from an upper middle income country, a country that wants to be a high income country. That's why that's, I, I was saying everybody might have to be considered. In his State of the Nation address in November 2020, the president of Botswana, Mogwetsi Masisi, endorsed these proposals, saying the recently approved National Social Protection Framework will deliver a single registry system with the aim of consolidating and harmonising the existing 29 social protection programs across government into five life course programs. The consolidation will forge coherence and synergies between these programs to assist government in building a stronger, more responsive, efficient and resilient social protection system. How are you feeling about the prospects for this transformation? If the life course approach is made uh, a, a core uh, for the National Social Protection Framework, then that would be uh, a great milestone. But what I'm trying to say is, as much as our government has been hard hit financially by the COVID-19 situation, our president and his cabinet and implementing ministries have taken this COVID-19 situation as a game changer. That's why we continue to spend in the social protection system still to assist now, even when our budget has been really affected. The idea is to take the life course approach and make it core part of the national social protection framework. So in that way, we are moving forward with adoption of the life course approach. And our, our government, our president has endorsed that. Uh, further, Botswana is collaborating with development partners like the World Bank to create a single national registry for all social protection system programs. And as a result, I think uh, establishing this comprehensive database will improve decision-making in terms of more effective targeting, coordination, and even the resource allocation. Without a doubt, this pandemic is a complete game changer as far as social policy is concerned. And I strongly agree that Botswana as a country requires to work within the line of the life course approach because we have seen how the citizens have been affected by this pandemic. I strongly believe that Botswana as a country requires a resilient, shock-responsive and adaptive social protection system. A social protection system capable of building resilience, 
preparing citizens to cope with shocks and having support shock response mechanisms in place after experiencing crises such as COVID-19. Because I believe that uh, a widespread uh, approach like the life cost one, you know, recognizes that massive disruptions will always occur. Like when you look at a country like Botswana, we experience a very different climate situation. Climate disruptions are highly likely to compound other shocks in future, such as pandemics. And it is critical that the core systems have the capacity for recovering and adaptation to ensure their survival, as well as to take advantage of new or revealed opportunities following the crisis, right? To improve the systems through the wider system changes. That is why I think these changes do matter for the future of Bozona social protection system. Thank you to Rajiv Ahel, and Lillian Mokodi for joining us for this episode. And if you're interested in the subject of what's changed since COVID-19, you might like to go back and check out our September episode for more. Before we go today, we'll end with our regular Quick Wins segment. Each month, we invite a guest to bring in pieces of news, research or knowledge that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. With me today is Tiago Borne, who is a Knowledge Management Officer at socialprotection.org. Welcome, Tiago. Thank you, Joe. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. Tell me, what's been on your mind when you've been thinking about social protection lately? Um, well, I, I just joined social protection five months ago. And to be completely honest with you, until then, I really didn't have a strong background on social protection. So when I joined the platform, I started studying a little bit and I realized that there was this really interesting lack of knowledge on certain topics, uh, which actually relate to my own background. I used to be an international relations professor here in Brazil. I've taught in different universities and my main research topic has always been warfare and conflict and new technologies and things like that. So when I started studying, I realized that there was this weird lack of research on the interface between war and social protection. I mean, when I say there's a lack of research on the field, of course, I'm not referring to social protection and peace building, for instance, or how can social protection act as a tool to avoid conflict and things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm what I'm really thinking here is is whether there is some sort of correlation between some certain kinds of social protection policy and war. For instance, what kind of policy matters when it comes to avoiding conflict? I mean, it seems reasonable to think that if you do have strong welfare state or strong social policy, people will probably have better life quality they won't really be pushed to resort into violence. I mean, that's somehow reasonable, right? That that makes sense. But then again, how can a state actually choose one kind of policy instead of the other? 
think that's also a very reasonable question. I'm not completely sure, but I'd say that this actually relates to the way that the discipline of IR has been evolving across the years. So for a long, long time, maybe 50 years, international relations scholars didn't really care about whatever happens inside the states. So aspects related to public policy, as I was saying, or social protection were completely absent. Of course, this has been changing in the past maybe 20, 30 years, but we still lack knowledge. We still lack research on how can something that happens inside one state affect what happens inside another state, etc. I mean, I'm not saying there's no research about these topics. What I'm saying is that I think there's still a long way to go. That is really interesting to hear you thinking about that link or whether there exists a link between warfare and social protection. So what are some of the, the research questions that you would like to see investigated between social protection, conflict and war? That, that's a great question. I mean, I, I'd really like to know whether there is a direct correlation, whether we can use data in order to prove that to have a strong social protection system will avoid conflict. But um, there's this one question, what kind of policy matters? I mean, can we actually identify one specific kind of policy that matters when it comes to social protection and avoiding conflict? I mean, is that even possible? <laughs> Probably not, but I was just I'd be really interested to see. I mean, I mean, some sort of, you know, statistic exercise on that matter. That sounds like a challenge. So if you, the listener or anyone you know, are looking at some of these questions around conflict, war, social protection, we'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. Um, tweet us at SP underscore gateway if you've got resources for Tiago or would like to connect some of those dots. Tiago, is there anything else you wanted to bring in and bring to people's attention today? Yeah, let me just, before I, I finish, let me just stress that I, I'm pretty sure there's something out there, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, I'm pretty new to the feud. So if anyone out there uh, know something that could help me, just share with us and I'll be very, very thankful. But um, other than that, uh, I'd like to invite everyone to check out our online courses. If you're a newbie like me, because we've got a lot of introductionary courses on different aspects of, of social protection. So yeah, I mean, this was much more of an invitation for people to, you know, maybe try to research a new topic and engage with, with new content. So yeah, just give us a visit and, and, and enjoy what we have got to offer. Thank you so much for the, for the provocation today um, and for making the time to talk to us, Tiago. Thanks to you. It was, it was really awesome. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and share an episode you've liked with a friend. Back next month. See you then.